Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Okay, so I want to start with a, a clip from uh, Saving Private Ryan. Um, who has seen Saving Private Ryan? Okay, so most of us, okay. Um, all right, World War II movie. Chris, you're the one who's a Saving Private Ryan expert. Why don't you give the little synopsis of Saving Private Ryan? Well, it's based on the, the fighting Sullivan, so it's truce. Here, come up here. Oh, yeah. yeah, come up here. So it's based on the Fighting Sullivans, which is a true story. So five brothers who are all drafted, and they've all been killed except for one. And so this special group, this is not a true story, the, uh, the, the movie, mm -hmm. but this special mission, this company is tapped to go find this last Ryan brother so that they don't have to send the final notice to this mother that every one of her children has been killed. And of course, he's deep in France, and not easy to get to. And so Tom Hanks is leading these bandits, <coughs> and there's this major uh, moral conflict. They're going, wait, 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 you're risking all of our lives to go save this one guy's life. Like, what is this? And so it's that story. And it has probably the most amazing opening scene in the history of movies. It sure does. OK. OK, so uh, let's watch this clip. Tankbusters, sir, P-51s. Angels on our shoulders. What, sir? sense of joy that I write to inform you your son Private James Ryan is well and at this very moment on his way home from European battlefields reports from the front indicate James did his duty in combat with great courage and steadfast dedication even after he was informed of the tragic loss your family has suffered in this great campaign to rid the world of tyranny and oppression I take great pleasure in joining the Secretary of War, the men and women of the United States Army, and the citizens of a grateful nation in wishing you good health and many years of happiness with James at your side. Nothing, not even the safe return of a beloved son, can compensate you or the thousands of other American families who have suffered great loss in this tragic war. 
I might share with you some words which have sustained me through long, dark nights of peril, loss, and heartache. And I quote, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Abraham Lincoln, yours very sincerely and respectfully, George C. Marshall, General, Chief of Staff. with you, I, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all of you have done for me. James? Captain John H. Miller.
I saw this movie on a plane a few years ago, which is not the place you want to see this movie for the first time. And I was sitting there just like, <laughs> but like by the end of it, it was, it was, oh man. So as Chris said, the movie is based on the true story of, of uh, these brothers. And this one here on the end, this is the one who was rescued. Um, unbelievable, the movie, right? It's, it's two and a half hours of essentially flashback where everything comes back to him. The, the Omaha, or the storming of the beach, the just the, the loss of brothers along the way. I mean, unbelievable. The idea that this whole platoon goes in to find this one man to rescue him, it's unbelievable. And that character at the end that he's talking to, the cross that he's talking to, is the gravesite of that Captain Miller who's Tom Hanks's character. Did you catch what he said on the bridge to him? What, what did he say before he died? Earn it. Earn this. What does he mean by that? Chris, what does he mean by that? Yeah. Like what I'm doing for you, live your life in such a way that, that, that mirrors the, the, the sacrifice that's being paid for you. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. Honor my sacrifice. I wanted to start with this because the mass, as powerful as that is, the mass is far more powerful, right? The story that we have to tell, sometimes Hollywood does a better job of capturing elements of it, but the mass is far more powerful because the mass is not a flashback like this movie was. The mass is not a reenactment. The mass is a representation and our participation in the cross. That cross, like Deacon and I were just in the Holy Land and we were, we went to, well, I actually, you didn't go, because you were getting your, you was getting tattooed. Deacon, like, hey, you got a tattoo. I'm spilling the beans. <laughs> so while he was getting a tattoo, I went to Calvary uh, to pray for his poor soul. He also got a motorcycle in the Holy Land. Uh-huh, yeah. Anyway, so we went to the Holy Sepulchre, which is where Calvary is, like, when we go to Mass, in some ways, we are more present at Calvary, even than I was standing at Calvary, which is a crazy thought. Matt, the Mass is the representation of that cosmic event where Christ waged war on our behalf to rescue us. Right? That's what we enter into. It's not a flashback. It's not a reenactment. That Jesus on the cross, yes, he's the victim, but as we've talked about all year, He's, he's the aggressor. He's the hunter. He's the one who is the ultimate ambush predator who, through all the events of the passion, through the Garden of Gethsemane to the scourging at the pillar, the, the spitting, the blindfolding, all of it, he's camouflaging his divinity so as to allow the enemy to draw close because he's hunting, right? He's hunting. He's hunting sin and death and Satan. He's allowing the enemy to come close because he wants to be swallowed by death, so that from the inside of death, from the belly of death, he could explode it from the inside out. That's what he's doing. So when you and I come to Mass, we're actually somehow participating in that. Like we are present to this reality. That's what we believe as Catholics, that we are participating in it. That's what we believe. It's not a reenactment. It's not like a Civil War reenactment. It's not even like play acting like stations of the cross or living stations. It's, 
It's becoming contemporaries with this event. That's what the mass is. And when we come to see that, like it changes everything. The mass goes from being this like opaque, boring, ritualistic thing that I have to go to because if I don't go to it, I'm going to go to hell. It goes from being this thing that you have to do to this thing that you would miss everything in order to get to do. Like if you went to one mass in your life, it would be worth it. It's, in, it's an incredible gift that the one who hung the stars in the sky, like you get to encounter that one in the mass. And the Eucharist is the supreme gift of the mass. And when you come to see that, it just changes everything, right? It changes everything. So that's what I want to do tonight. I want to like help us to dive into those. I didn't say unpack in my head. I was like, don't say unpack. You're in my head, Chris. You're in my head. All right. I mean, like, think about this. Like you and I, we just we just go to Sunday mass blithely. But I mean, this is the reality. Many parts of the world. I know for most people, though, like their experience of mass is not this life changing encounter. Um, most people's experience of mass is more something like this. <laughs> it's only if you're preaching. Yeah, it's, what's that? It's only if you're preaching. Oh, thanks, yeah. The, uh, I mean, this was me most of, like, my childhood growing up when I did go to mass, it's like, this, is, this has got to be over sometime soon. I want to show you a video of a, of a church that uh, has some ideas of how to spruce up their Sunday liturgy. So. To, you know, to help the, the board in spirit. Uh, let's watch this. It's Christmas, and you know what that means. It's time for your annual trip to church with your parents. And you're in luck, because this year, St. Joseph's Church is going full throttle with our one-night-only Christmas Mass Spectacular. We've got appearances by all your church favorites, like Devin, the newly atheist teen who's making a point of not saying the prayers. Pastor Pat, who sings everything at constantly changing speeds. So glory and honor is yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. And Mr. Trubler, who's eager to say peace be with you while holding out the sweatiest hand you've ever seen. Why so wet? Still not sold? Well, we got organist Linda Tejo. Watch her take 20 minutes to arrange her sheet music and still start on the wrong chord. Excuse me, just pull yourself together, Tejo. Plus, teen soloist Bethany Opsel, who's up there in the choir trying hard as heck. The he word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Yeah, and don't miss St. Joseph's back-to-back -back liturgical readers. 12-year-old Ryan Welty, who really doesn't want to be doing this. And lo, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and proclaimed her the goodness. <laughs> and 44-year-old Colleen Chapin, who really, really does. A reading from Paul to the Corinthians. Take, eat. Looking for even more fun? Check out the sermon, where you'll hear the softest pastor joke, followed by the softest parishioner laugh. The wise men 
had to follow the North Star for three weeks. And back then, I didn't have MapQuest. <laughs> and who's that over there? It's rows and rows of little Filipino ladies you've never seen before. But they must live nearby because this is their church. Plus, hear all 44 verses of O Come All Ye Faithful. We're not skipping the Latin verses this mass. Is this song still about Jesus? And at the end of the service, stay and have your mind blown by watching Pastor Pat walk to his house. It's connected to the church. Try and catch a quick glimpse inside. Whoa, it's just a little table in there. So this Christmas, come to St. Joseph's Christmas Mass Spectacular. It's church, but on a Thursday. It's just so accurate. <laughs> oh my gosh. Linda Chapin, who really wants to be there. All right. That's so good. All right, so why are people bored? Why are people bored? Uh, they're bored because they don't know what they're seeing. They don't know what's in front of them. Right? It's, have you ever had the experience of hearing someone tell a joke, and they get to the end of the joke, and you listen to all the parts of the joke, but you didn't catch the punchline. You're just standing there like, mm. right? Like. I, I don't, I missed it, right? I missed it, right? Um, it also reminds me of when I, was, when I was first in seminary. Who here plays Euchre? Anybody play Euchre? Yeah, we got some Euchre fans. Okay, Euchre's a very mysterious looking game from the outside. I thought that I could just pick it up by just watching it. I was sorely wrong, right? So it's like, card goes down, card goes down, card goes down. Some random card goes down, someone, someone just like, whoosh, my cards, right? Like, why, why, why did you? doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So like, that's how I feel most people's experience of the mass is. It's, it's I don't know what I'm seeing. Right? I don't know what I'm seeing, and I don't know how to enter into it. Um, when people come to the mass thinking, I'm supposed to be entertained, you're not going to be entertained. It's not entertainment. It's worship. Entertainment's about you. If it's about you, yeah, this is the wrong place to be, because it's not entertaining. It's about worship. It's about sacrifice. People don't know what they're looking at. They don't know how to enter into it. And man, how often I've heard as a priest people who've said, I used to be Catholic and I left more or less because I just wasn't being fed. I wasn't being fed. Let's watch this. A couple years ago, a good friend texted me from Iraq, please pray for our church, where all the people are held captive by terrorists. A couple hours later, she texted me again, Lord have mercy, they killed everyone, including the children. That same Sunday, I went to Mass, so grateful to God I didn't have to worry about getting killed. And there was a kid in the back pew playing video games the whole time. It really struck me that just 7,000 miles away from us, a whole church load of people had given their lives to be where he was. What did they see that he was missing?
You know, for the past few thousand years, since the birth of the church, Catholics have risked their lives just to be at Mass. Beautiful, ornate cathedrals have been built because of what happens inside those cathedrals at Mass. And I just joined the Pope and tens of thousands of Catholics in procession behind the Eucharist because of what happens at Mass. What are all these people seeing at Mass? If you're not seeing it, you're missing something pretty amazing. Now, this is the line, this is the question. What are all these people seeing at Mass? If you're not seeing it, you're missing something pretty amazing. Tonight, I want to invite us to like, peer deeply into the history of the Mass and the mind-blowing reality of the Eucharist. And I, I, I want us to see all of this, I guess, through first century Jewish lenses, which is how the first Christians saw these realities, for, through first century Jewish lenses. And mind you, this is only going to be scratching the very, very tip of the iceberg. So this is where your extra reading, this is where all of those resources on form.org come into play. David, you were just saying you just finished the 10-part series on uh, formed, what, it's, called the, it's called Presence, isn't it? Brant Petrie? I think it's called Presence. Yeah. Ten, a 10 part series on the Eucharist by Dr. Brant Petrie. It's unbelievable. Um, unformed. All of you have access to form. So, again, this is just scratching the tip of the iceberg. So, here's, here's where we're going to begin with this. Let's take a look at this. So, this is my Bible. And this big chunk over here, this is the Old Testament. Say, hi, Old Testament. Hi, Old Testament. This is the New Testament. Say, hi, New Testament. Hi, Thanks for playing. Okay, so Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament, the Old Testament has a center point to it, a fulcrum to it, we can say. A center point around which everything in the, in the Old Testament revolves. Either, either everything is leading up to it or everything is... is following upon it. And that center point is the Exodus. The Exodus is the center point of the Old Testament. The word Exodus is Greek for the departure, the going out from. That's what the word Exodus literally means. So the Exodus is, it, it was and is the defining event that defines the people of Israel. We are the people of the Exodus. We are the people that God has chosen from all the people of the world to be his peculiarly his own, as we say in uh, Deuteronomy, that they are the people who God selected and liberated in a powerful way from slavery to Pharaoh. So just a little biblical recap for us. Going back to Genesis, so you've got the figure of Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob changes, his name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. The youngest son is Joseph, right? Joseph. And all the other, all older brothers are jealous of Joseph, so they eventually sell him into slavery into Egypt. So he goes down to Egypt. He rises to a position of prominence in the Egyptian court. A famine strikes the land where the, his, his older brothers are. 
They come to Egypt to beg for food. Joseph at this point is basically number two in the Egyptian kingdom. They have this conversation. They don't recognize Joseph. Then he suddenly reveals himself as this great family reunion. It's me, brothers, this whole time, blah, blah, blah. I don't hate you. I would have hated them. Anyway, so uh, they settle in Egypt, and they begin to multiply, and they begin to multiply, and begin to multiply. Then, ex- then the book of Exodus says, a new king comes to power who did not know Joseph, and they enslaved the Israelites. So that's where this starts. They're enslaved for 430 years. God then acts in a decisive way by raising up the figure of Moses to deliver the people from slavery to Pharaoh into freedom, right? And all of this is precipitated by the plagues, right? So God acts in a mighty way, powerful demonstrations, this God versus Pharaoh showdown happens, and the culminating plague, the final plague, is the death of the firstborn, right? The Passover, right? whereby the angel enters into the land of Egypt to strike down all the firstborn, the firstborn of the cattle, the firstborn of the sheep and the goats and the slaves and everyone in the household. Who here, by the way, is the firstborn? Oh, man. I hope you got the lamb's blood. (laughs) Okay. So God instructs Moses to tell the Israelites to take a lamb, a year-old male without blemish or broken bones, to slaughter this lamb in the evening twilight and to take some of its blood and to smear it on the lintel and doorposts of the house. That would be a sign to the destroying angel to pass over that house. Hebrew Pesach, literally to pass over the house. And then God instructs Moses, this is to be a, a, a meal that is, this is to be an event that is commemorated every year. He gives instructions to Moses for the people, precise instructions for how they're going to celebrate this Passover celebration. And devout Jews, even to this day, devout Jews, no matter how far they are removed from the Exodus, they understand that when they celebrate the Passover, they are here and now participating in those events. They see themselves as part of those who are in the Exodus. They are one in the crowd They are contemporaries with the liberation that happened in Egypt. That's what the Passover liturgy, the Seder, the Haggadah, does for them. This is what God instructed. And this point right here is massively important for us to grasp. This is from Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has established a memorial for himself. In other words... It, it wasn't as if the Jews, once they got to, you know, through the Red Sea, to the Promised Land, it wasn't as if they said, man, that was really awesome what God did. We should do something to remember this, you know? Let's, like, brainstorm some ideas, you know? That's not what they did. This was God's idea. This was God's idea. He established this for himself. And the word that's used there in Greek is this word. Anamnesis. Anamnesis. What does this word mean? It's, by the way, this is the same word that Jesus uses in the Last Supper where he says, do this in memory of me. Do this in anamnesis of me. So this gets rendered in English, right? Do this in memory. It's it's so much more than that. Okay, so what does this word mean? So just, 
um, I can put it this way. It, it means the, the, the way that the, that the Jewish people understood this was it wasn't just simply like a fondly remembering, right? Like I'm not, it's not like a gesture that I do to remember this person or to remember this event. It's something that gives me access mystically, powerfully, spiritually to those realities. Anamnesis means I become a contemporary with that past event. That's what this word means. So the New Testament, just like the Old Testament, where there's this fulcrum, this center point to the Old Testament, where everything is leading up to it, everything is following after it, and there's this meal that's connected to it, the New Testament also has a center point. What is the center point of the New Testament? The defining event? The passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what we call the Paschal Mystery, right? Everything is leading up to it or everything is following after it. We can think about it this way. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are essentially, when you look at how much space is dedicated to what themes or events, they're essentially passion narratives with lengthy introductions. Most of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are dedicated to the passion, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus with this like introductory bit. Right, that's the center point. That's the center point. In fact, when you look at the writings of Paul, right? Paul, whose writings pre, predated the Gospels, all that Paul talked about was the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You don't see anything in Paul where he's talking about the parables of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus or the sayings of Jesus. Paul says, I preach one thing, Christ and him crucified. Right? He ran around the ancient world saying anastasis, resurrection. That was his message, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You don't get any life details in Paul about Jesus. We don't know that he was born you know, in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. Like, we don't get any of those things. From Paul and the early Christians, it's this proclamation of the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Those, the Gospels come later so as to help people fill in the gaps about Jesus' life and his, and his ministry. So the event that the Gospels and the whole New Testament have as their center is the Paschal mystery. And just like the central event of the Old Testament, the central event of the New Testament also has a meal connected to it. Right? The Old Testament has the Exodus and the Passover Seder. The New Testament has the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the Last Supper, which also happens to be the Passover. The Passover. Oh, I have a picture of Paul I meant to show you. I like this picture of Paul. This is, this is a picture of uh, a statue of St. Paul at the, the Basilica in Rome, St. Paul outside the wall. I always love this statue. Anyway, okay, so I don't know if you uh, realize this. So, okay, so we have, here's the Last Supper. All right, we actually have actual footage. I don't know. Do you know this? We have actually. All right. You're not surprised by this anymore. I, you just. <laughs> Here we go. Before this night is over, one of you shall betray me three times. No. no. Master, how can you feel that anyone here would betray you? You who we would follow even unto our death? Yes. 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 Does everybody want soup? 
Please, we must talk. This may be our last supper. Hey, it's my first order. Oh, look, one little question, I'll let you all go. Are you all together, or is it separate checks? Please, go away. Go away. Go away. All right, okay, okay. Yea, yea, so you say. But one who sits amongst us has already betrayed me this night. Who? 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 Who can it be? Judas! Hmm. Do you want a beverage? Try the mulled wine. It's terrific. No! Leave us alone! Go! 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 All right. Jesus. Yes. What? 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 Yes. Jesus. What? Yes. What? You said what? What? Nothing. Ah, Leonardo. Buongiorno. Just a sec. It's all right. We ordered a group portrait. Ah. Ah. Oh. Yeah, Fernabra, this is no good. All I got is a box. Okay. Everybody want to be in the picture? Get up and go to the other side of the table. Come on. So yeah, actual footage. So uh, <coughs> the instructions for this meal, this meal, the Last Supper, the Passover, the Messiah, the instructions for this meal, they don't come from God through a man as they did for the Passover Seder. They come from God made man, right? Very different. Who on the night before he was to suffer for us, then the night that he was betrayed, all of that, he does what we do when we gather for the Eucharist. Namely, he takes bread Blesses, breaks, blesses it, breaks, and gives it, right? Here's what's so fascinating about this. This is where we need first century Jewish lenses, right, to see these realities. That in the midst of the Passover liturgy, which was an established liturgy, there's no, like, going off script, Jesus changes the words. Like, imagine you were coming to Sunday Mass, and Father Joe or myself, we get up there, we go to start doing the Eucharistic prayer, and we say something like, you know, uh, take this, all of you cool cats, eat of it. Do you think like, you would notice if we were adding words like that? I don't know why that was the first example that was in my mind. <laughs> it's the jet lag. Okay, you would notice. You would notice if we were changing things, right? So Jesus gets up there. This is, he doesn't say, this is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate in the wilderness, which was the line you were supposed to say. He says and said, this is my body, which will be given up for you. And if you're one of the apostles, you're sitting there and you're thinking like, like flipping through your script, like what page is he on? You know, like what is he saying? And then he gets to the cup of wine. And again, he does the same thing. He changes it. He says, this is my blood, which will be poured out for you and for many. Do this in anamnesis. That's the word. Do this in memory of me. And the church has been doing it for 2000 years since. So, like, what is he doing there at the Last Supper? He's inaugurating the new exodus through the new Passover 
of his body and blood, which is the new covenant. He's reinterpreting this Old Testament event. He's reinterpreting it in light of himself and what he's about to do. You remember the, the scene? It's going to be, I think it's the gospel this coming Sunday, the transfiguration. I think it's this Sunday. I'll have to look that up. Anyway, the, um, Jesus is, he takes Peter, James, and John and leads them up Mount Tabor, which we went to the other day. No big deal. And he's transfigured before them, right? And appearing on the mountaintop are two other people. Who are the two other people? Moses and, and not Isaiah, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. And they're having a conversation. They're talking about something. It says they were discussing his exodus that was soon to take place in Jerusalem. <coughs> Whose exodus? Jesus' exodus. Moses, the deliverer of the Old Testament, had an exodus from slavery to Pharaoh through the waters of the Red Sea into the Promised Land. Jesus, the deliverer, is going to deliver his people from slavery to, to, to an enemy far worse than Pharaoh, the trafficker, the tyrant, the ancient serpent. He delivers us from slavery to sin and death into freedom, into the kingdom of our God and Father. They're discussing the Exodus. So look, here's, the, here's a huge point of tonight. We didn't invent the mass. It wasn't a group, there wasn't a think tank of old Italian white dudes in Rome who are like, let's think of something to do on Sunday mornings. Bocce? Nah. How about church? You know, like, that's not what they did. We didn't invent it. It was given to us. It was given to us. And it enables us, just like the Passover Seder enables the Jews to participate in those events, the mass given to us by Jesus enables us to participate in the saving mystery of Christ. This is what St. Paul affirms in his letter to the Corinthians. He says this, For I received from the Lord. From who? The Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was, when the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the chalice after supper, saying, this chalice is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Like this is what St. Paul is affirming. Like these words that have become so overly familiar to us. Like they, but they were shocking words to the apostles. Like when Jesus says, take this, all of you eat of it. This is my body. Take this, all of you drink of it. This is my blood. We just hear these words and we're like, yeah, that's church. But those were shocking words to the apostles. And it didn't make sense to them. None, none of that made sense to them until after his death and resurrection and after he sends the Holy Spirit upon them. And their minds are enlightened. And they're like, oh, that's what he meant. Like, look at this. Remember the scene after the resurrection, Jesus with his disciples, he's on the road. To, he's, he walks with them on the road to Emmaus. You got these two folks who on Easter Sunday morning are walking away from Jerusalem to this town called Emmaus. They're walking in the wrong direction. And as they're walking, this unknown figure comes up with them. It's Jesus. They don't recognize him. And he asks them, what are you talking about, right? What are you talking about? And they say, 
we're, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened in these days? He says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, mighty and true. We thought he was going to be the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the one. Then he says, oh, you're so slow to believe. And then it says, beginning with Moses, he unpacks for them. Jesus unpacks for them. He unpacks for them how everything in the Old Testament was pointing to him. They're walking and talking as Jesus is explaining how everything was pointing to him. And they come to make camp. And this is what they say. They constrained him saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we walked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them who said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Jesus, he, he, he takes the resurrected Jesus, does what he did with his disciples at the Last Supper. He takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to them. And their eyes, it says, their eyes are open as they recognize him and he vanishes out of their sight. They run back to Jerusalem, all of this stuff. The, what we see here is the Lord is continuing to do, the resurrected Jesus is continuing to do with his disciples what he instructed the apostles to do at the Last Supper. And like vision is given to them to see that Jesus is present in this. He's present in this. And then you have this expression, the breaking of the bread begins to be used as a shorthand for the mass. It's what Christians are now doing. Because Jesus told them to do it. The breaking of the bread was not the disciples having like little dinner parties in their houses. It wasn't like a first century potluck, right? The breaking of the bread was them doing what Jesus instructed them to do on the night of the Last Supper. We see this in, in Acts chapter 2. This is what defined the early church. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a description of the early church. Like, what did they do? They didn't do Bible studies. You know why? Because there wasn't a New Testament to study yet. But there was a New Testament to celebrate called the Mass, the Eucharist. The New Testament, the New Covenant, according to the New Testament was not a document, but a sacrament. Ba-dum-boom, right? Let me say that again. The New Testament or the New Covenant, according to the New Testament, is not a document, but a sacrament. It's the breaking of the bread. This is what the Christians started doing. They started coming together to celebrate this reality. They, they, they discerned, these early Christians, they discerned that this meal that Jesus instituted 
It wasn't merely a meal, just like the Passover wasn't merely a meal, that this meal gave them access to the power and redemption that happened on that cross. In other words, they discerned that this meal was a sacrifice. The meal was a sacrifice. The word sacrifice, it means to make holy. It doesn't mean to kill something, right? In the Mass, we are not re-sacrificing Jesus. This is what a lot of, I don't know, bad, bad theology thinks of, of Catholicism, that somehow every Mass we think we're re-sacrificing Jesus. No, we're not re-sacrificing him. Like, it is the same sacrifice that Jesus offered once for all on the cross that we now are experiencing in an unbloody manner with bread and wine. Right? The offering is being made present to us again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? The one sacrifice, we're entering into that. We become contemporaries with that. Like we are there is the point. We are there on Calvary. We are there in the upper room. We are there in the throne room of heaven. We are there. And every, like every Mass is supposed to be this incredible encounter, this incredible encounter with the living God. Like you and I, we are, it's not just supposed to be the bread and wine that gets changed at Mass. We are supposed to be also changed at Mass. Like the, the story of the Magi, when they come to meet the newborn Christ, there's a powerful detail in that story that says they depart by a different road. There's a lot of church fathers who picked up on this and, and basically say, well, of course they left by a different way. Because no one can come to Jesus and leave the same way you came. Like we're supposed to depart by a different way. We're supposed to, what's your favorite dismissal? We're supposed to leave and to take what's been transformed in us out into the world. So I, like, I cringe when I hear people tell me that mass is boring. But like, I mean, I get it. Like, you've heard my story, right? Like, nine years old, back to the church, behold the Lamb of God, and I'm going, bah, right? Like, I get it. I get it. I get it. Don't tell me, though, the mass is boring. Like, you might not get it, but it's anything but boring. It's not entertainment. It's, it's worship. The Mass is about what God is doing and what he's doing for me. And it's mind-blowing. Like, you are there. You and I are there at the foot of the cross when the Son of God is offering his flesh and blood to the Father to ransom us from slavery to sin and death and hell. And there are so many Catholics who just don't know this, who just don't see this. Like the fact that you are even like soon to be new Catholics, that you are taking time to hear this right now means that you are in a very small percentile within the church of Catholics who like God willing. Yeah, you're going to understand this in a way that most cradle Catholics don't. Most cradle Catholics just take it all for granted. And you just go through the motions. I don't want any of you to go through the motions. <sighs> okay. There's so much I want to get to tonight. I don't know if we're going to get to all of it. We have a serious problem in our church when 70% of self-reported faithful Catholics, those who come to Mass, 70% of them do not believe 
in the most central doctrine that the church has, namely that that bread and wine in the mass truly becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. 70% of Catholics who come to mass don't believe that. Like that by itself, I think that, that there, there's a greater miracle, there's a greater miracle in our church on Sundays than even what happens on the altars. It's the fact that people come who don't believe that what happens on the altar is real. Like, I don't know why they're here. There's a lot of other better things you can do on Sunday mornings if you don't believe that that's actually Jesus. Uh, okay, so this is the question we're going to look at now. This, what is the Eucharist? What is the Eucharist? Actually, let's take a few minutes. This is a good stopping point. All right, so here's the question for us tonight. What is the Eucharist? So it's the year 2023. We live in Wadsworth. Anybody know how many churches, like Christian churches, there are in Wadsworth? There's, I, I, it's somewhere around 22 or 23. In little sleepy Wadsworth. You got a lot of options. And some of them do communion, some don't. What's the, is it the, there's the one church that's on the square that advertises, we've got communion this, uh, communion service this Sunday. Mosaic? Do they do? There's a mosaic church? <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> so there's a lot of different. Okay, the Methodist one will do its communion Sunday. The Methodist one, they'll put it on their board. Yeehaw, that sounds real special. <laughs> so there's a lot of flavors, if you will, of Christianity, even in our own town, and a lot of different understandings of the Lord's Supper. And like what Jesus meant and all of those things. So what's the truth? What's the historical truth? I feel like I'm getting into Jerry Seinfeld. What's the deal? What's the truth? What have Christians believed about this since the beginning? And here's the truth. The clear and constant teaching of the church, which was unchallenged for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, is that the Eucharist is not a symbol it's not merely symbolic. It's him. It's his body, blood, soul, and divinity hidden under the appearances of bread and wine. That's what Christians have believed. There's a great video uh, by a very prominent po Protestant pastor. Boy, say that five times fast. Very prominent Protestant pastor named Francis Chan. Uh, maybe you can send a, that link out after this. Oh, you did? Yeah, and he's got his fingers. He's like, I know. Yeah. He's like, that's, that's a thing to consider. Yeah. That for the first Christians, the center of their sanctuary was not a pulpit, but an altar. And that's significant. Okay. So the word that the church uses to describe this reality is this awesome word for hangman. Next time you play hangman, <laughs> use transubstantiation. You will invariably win, especially if you play with second graders. That's pretty fun. Like, there's no way there's a word that long. You just don't know it yet. <laughs> so, okay. So this word, um, true or false, this word appears in the Bible. 
false, false. This word doesn't appear in the Christian lexicon until around 1,200 years after the birth of Christ. So why would we base our teaching on the Eucharist uh, using a word like this that comes from the medieval ages? Well, here's the thing to consider, that the word Trinity also doesn't appear in the Bible, right? That these theological concepts that are the fruit of deep prayer and reflection, um, these are the words that the church has used to describe these mystical realities. It's trying to give precise language to mystery, right? So this word transubstantiation, what, we, what does it mean? Okay, we can think about it this way. Everything uh, that you can point your finger to, everything in the world, is the composite of both what philosophers or theologians call substance and accident. Substance is answering the question, what is that? Right? What a thing is, its deepest reality. And accidents is how a thing appears. Right? So, uh, for example, I hold this up right now. I ask, what is this? this is, yeah, good. Not, not a trick question. <laughs> uh, turkey? No. This is a watch, right? What are some of its accidents? Describe it. Glass, round. What color is the face? Red. Does, it, does a watch have to have a red face? No. Deacon, hold up your watch. What color is his fa watch face? <laughs> You're going to get a red watch. I know you are. Anyway, so the uh, substance is what a thing is. Accidents is how a thing appears. And almost always, how a thing appears coincides with what the thing is, right? So if that thing walking by looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, waddles like a duck, it's probably a, a duck, right? How it appears coincides with what it is. When it comes to the Eucharist, what we believe is that after the prayer of consecration, after we've called down the Holy Spirit upon the gifts of bread and wine, the deepest reality, the substance of bread changes while the accidents of the bread remains. So before Mass, bread and wine are sitting in the back of the church, and you ask the question, what is that back there? It's bread and wine. The bread and wine is brought up to the altar, Eucharistic prayer is prayed, consecration happens. We ask the question, what is that? What's the right answer? The body and blood of Jesus. But it still appears as bread and wine, still looks like bread and wine, still tastes like bread and wine. You drink enough of the precious blood, you're going to get snookered, right? It still has the properties of alcohol. You eat enough of the body of Christ, you're going to get full, right? It's going to take a lot. <laughs> it still retains the properties, but the deepest reality has changed. The deepest reality has changed. Now, here's the question for us smart people in 2023. Why in the world would we believe that? Why would we believe that? Because that's kind of crazy. That's a really hard thing to believe. That that piece of bread becomes the flesh of the God of the universe? That wine becomes the blood of Christ? Why would we believe that? It has everything to do with, be, what, like, is Jesus who he said he was? Because if he is, 
then he has the, his words have the power to do that. Right? Remember when we were talking about C.S. Lewis and the whole Lord, lunatic, liar, trilemma, right? Either he wasn't who he said he was and he knew it, in which case he's a liar, or he wasn't who he said he was and he didn't know it, in which case he was a lunatic, or he was who he said he was, in which case he's the Lord, right? This, this, is, the, this is the trilemma. This is, this is what it boils down to, right? If he is who he said he is, then his words do not merely describe reality like my words do. His words make reality because that's what God's words do, right? God says, let there be light. And what happens? There's light, right? Jesus says, little girl, I say unto you, arise. And the little girl gets up. He says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes out. Jesus looks at bread and he says, this is my body. He looks at wine and says, this is my blood. And it happens. It happens. Like the efficacy of his word doesn't merely describe reality. It makes reality. And our belief in transubstantiation, our belief in this, it, it's, it's completely scriptural. Especially look at John's gospel, John's gospel chapter 6, known as the bread of life discourse, where Jesus comes to Capernaum to this synagogue, where we were the other day, And he preaches, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life in you. Right, so look at this. So the crowd said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. So right now they're thinking on the natural level. They're thinking about their bellies because he just fed them in the wilderness, right? The multiplication of the loaves and fishes. Their bellies were full. Give us this bread. That would be awesome, right? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that <coughs> you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And him who comes to me, I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should, not lose, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, which is the right response. Let's just be clear. These are not like jerk Jews who are like, ah, we don't like what you're saying. What he's saying is insane. If he's not God, right? They murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not murmur among yourselves, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. 
He's pointing to himself. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. There's another point in the Bible where we hear about a food that if you eat of it, you'll live forever. Where do we hear about that? Genesis. There's two trees in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The tree of life. This is a spoiler alert, but the Eucharist is the fruit that hangs from the tree of life. Right? The cross is the tree of life. What do we say? Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Right? Jesus is the fruit of the tree of life. The Eucharist is the tree of life. Then he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? At this point, Jesus, he could have corrected their literalism. He could have said, whoa, 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 guys, 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 my brothers, I'm only speaking symbolically. I'm only speaking symbolically. You just have to eat the flesh of my faith or, you know, like that's what I'm talking about. He doesn't do that. And as a moral teacher, he would have had the obligation to correct their misunderstanding. He doesn't do that. He turns up the heat. He turns up the heat. <clears throat> so Jesus said to them, truly, truly. That's a Jewish way of saying, I mean this what I'm saying to you right now. That's what he's saying. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Notice how, like, physical this is. Visceral, right? This is the bread which came down from heaven, pointing to himself. Not such that the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Whew! Instead of using the word phagain in Greek, which describes human way of eating, Jesus uses the word trogain, where he's, like, where he's saying, I'm telling you, unless you trogain the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, Trogain is how like animals eat. Like he makes it more literal. He just intensifies it. Then immediately at this in John 6, a whole host of people, thousands of them who've been following him at this point, they leave. They say, this is too hard for us. And then at John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, and the crowds left him. John 6, 6, 6. That's where you go, ooh. <laughs> Does Jesus run after them? No. He lets them walk away. He lets them walk away. And then he turns to the 12, his apostles. And he's willing to lose everything on this point. He says, are you going to leave too? To which Peter responds for the whole group, Lord, to whom shall we go? He's like, if you got another rabbi in mind, like, <laughs> let me know. But he's like, to whom shall we go? 
He's, his, Jesus here is saying, like, if you are not going to listen to me on this, I have to start over because this is the gift. This is the gift. And yeah, Peter's response, like, Lord, we don't know what you mean. I have no clue what you mean. But I've never seen anybody do what you do. I've never seen anybody speak like you speak. My chips are cashed. I'm in. I don't get it, but I'm in, is essentially his response. I love this from Flannery O'Connor, who's one of my favorite writers from the 20th century. She put it this way. She was at a dinner party, and this famous actress says, they're talking about religion, and she says, oh, I think the Eucharist is a lovely symbol, to which Flannery chimes in, and she goes, well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. That ended the dinner conversation pretty abruptly. (laughs) But she's right. If it's a symbol, to hell with it. Like, all of our churches are grandiose, gaudy bread boxes if it's just a symbol. Like, if it's just a symbol, I've made a big mistake, right? Like, I want a different job. If it's just a symbol, to hell with it. Here's the question. Is this what the earliest Christians believed about the Eucharist? Or is this, like, just later in the centuries, Christians began to believe this? Turns out this is what they've believed from the very beginning. I want to run through some of these quotes. St. Ignatius of Antioch, writing in the second century, so like just a few decades after the resurrection, he says, they abstain from the Eucharist, meaning non-Christians, and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his graciousness, raised from the dead. If any of you know um, Dr. John Bergsma, who teaches at Sumerville, this quote in particular was pivotal in his conversion when he realized that Ignatius, when he says, the flesh which suffered for our sins, he's referencing, like, that flesh that he's talking about is the Eucharistic flesh. It's the same flesh. This is where Bergsma was like, I, oh, boy, I'm, I must be wrong, Right? Or how about this? St. Cyril of Jerusalem, writing in the 4th century, early 4th century, since then he himself has declared and said of the bread, this is my body, who shall dare to doubt any longer? And since he, he has affirmed and said, this is my blood, who shall ever hesitate, saying that it is not his blood? Or how about St. John Chrysostom? John Chrysostom, deacon, you like this guy? 4th century, the bread, or this is Gregory Nifsa, never mind. The bread is at first common bread, but when the mystery, meaning the sacrament, sanctifies it, it is called and actually becomes the body of Christ. Here's John Chrysostom. How many now say, I wish I could see his shape, his appearance, his garments, his sandals. I like that, his sandals. John Chrysostom, only look, you see him, you touch him, you Eat him. This is where he's saying, like, don't get in your head. Man, it would have been so, it'd be so great if I could have been in the first century and could have actually seen Jesus. John Chrysostom is going, he's going, (laughs) he's slapping you across the face, going, you do. You see the Eucharist. You see him. That's what he's saying. Another John Chrysostom. It is not the power of man which makes what is put before us the body and blood of Christ but the power of Christ himself, who was crucified for us. The priest standing there in the place of Christ says these words, 
but their power and grace are from God. This is my body, he says, and these words transform what lies before him. One more from Justin Martin. This food we call the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake except one who believes that the things we teach are true and has received the washing for forgiveness of sins and for rebirth, and who lives as Christ handed down to us. Oh, so many good things. We can put it this way, that the universe was created as a tabernacle to house the most holy Eucharist. Like everything God made, the co- he made the universe so that he could dwell in it. Final question. Why would God do this? Why would he give us this gift? The best way I know how to answer this is with this question. What does love want? In a word, love wants union. Love wants to be one with the beloved. That's what love wants. Love wants closeness. Like you can hear that yearning in every love song, every poem, right? This burning yearning for union, for communion. And God is love, which means that he burns and yearns for union and communion. St. John Paul II referred to the Eucharist as the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride, which is odd when you consider the fact that we have another sacrament called matrimony where you actually have a bridegroom and a bride. But John Paul II is saying, no, no, no. The Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. Why? Because it's the definitive meaning of self-gift. If you want to understand, like those of you who are married, those, like those of us who love, which is all of us, the desire to be a gift given away, If you want to understand that, the only place it makes sense is in Jesus, in the self-giving love of Jesus. Like, here's the crazy thing, right? Like, God wants union with you. He doesn't want mere friendship. He wants union with you. I don't know why, but he does. He wants all that is in him to be in us. It's what he said at the Last Supper. Look at the Last Supper discourse in John's Gospel. Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one, that I would be in them and they would be in me. Like the power of that word in. He wants to be in us. Dwelling in us. That we would dwell in him. Like he who needs nothing. He who's infinitely happy. He wants his life to be in us. Like, God doesn't just merely tolerate you. He loves you. And he wants union with you. And love, it it, it wants to express itself. Like, God isn't content merely with words. Like, he wants to show this love, to give himself. This is what the Eucharist is. Like, if we actually saw it, we would crawl up the aisle to communion. Don't do it because you'll have people trip. 
But like, again, that right there, that is part of why the church in her wisdom over these centuries has discerned what are the most fitting outward expressions of reverence that are the most fitting ways of expressing the reality that's taking place. And the church in her wisdom had, dis had discerned for centuries to kneel and to receive him on the tongue is the most fitting way. Like, I see people approach the communion line like someone approaching the buffet line at Golden Corral. Like, I'll take some of this, and I'll take some of that, and I'll take some Eucharist, and... Like, you, as, as, a, as, as someone who distributes communion, you can tell, you can tell clearly what's going on in someone's heart just simply based on like their disposition as they approach. Those of you who are communion ministers, you know that. You can see it. Like every time we go to Mass, it's, a, it's meant to be this life-changing encounter, but that's not to say it's meant to be this deeply emotional thing. And most times Mass is not deeply emotional, and that's okay, and that's honestly good. Because if our faith was merely based or totally based on the emotional experience we have, like, it, that's just way too fragile of a thing. It's way too fragile of a thing. Like just, I mean, just like marriage, you don't always have the warm fuzzies. I mean, I'm a celibate, so I don't know. But I think in marriage, you don't always have the warm fuzzies for your spouse, right? And love often, it always proves itself in the absence of emotion, right? In the absence of feelings. What's a great gift to us as Catholics is the objectivity of the sacraments, that no matter how you're feeling, when you come into Mass that day, you know this is happening, and he's going to give himself to me. This is happening, and he's going to give himself to me. Sunday Mass, with or without feelings, it's anything but boring. We'll end with this quote, and I'm turning it over to you, Deacon, with exactly five minutes to spare. When people ask me why I go to church every Sunday, I tell them it's because no matter how boring the homily, no matter how terrible the music, no matter what else is happening, the bread and wine on the altar at every Catholic Mass becomes the body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. I go because that bread and wine don't just symbolize Jesus. They actually become his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Jesus is there, not just every Sunday, but every day, ready to be received by the faithful so they can have eternal life.